Well, Oregon has opted for more cowbell. I should have gotten an actual cowbell. But cowbell in this instance is a quality player out of the transfer portal. Let's talk about Cam Alexander. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, like, comment, subscribe, rate, review. Please and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. We're almost to 5,000 subs on YouTube. We can do it. I believe. Like Ted Lasso, I believe in belief. I also believe that today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more right now. New customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started. So let's talk about the Ducks new transfer portal edition. Are they done along the offensive line in the portal? And many a mailback questions, including one about our now old friend Ty Thompson. But Oregon adds Cam Alexander, a cornerback from UTSA, that's the Roadrunners, meet me, out of the American Athletic Conference, a high-quality Group of Five conference, by the way. I think if you go below the Power Five ranks, top two conferences, American and Mountain West, both of them right there, good, solid, quality league. He's 5'11", 175 pounds, so more in the Nico Reed mold compared to Kyrie Jackson. He began his career at then FCS Sam Houston State, now a member of Conference USA. But this past season with the Roadrunners down there in San Antonio under Jeff Trailer, who's a very good head coach, and they have a very good team and a good program year in and year out, by the way, he was an All-American Conference selection in 2023. He had an overall PFF grade of 81.2. He had a coverage grade specifically of 82.6, 82.6, which is a higher individual coverage grade than any corner or I believe any player on Oregon's team this year. Now, granted, he's not going up against Roma Dunze and Jalen McMillan and Jalen Polk and that team that came up short in the national championship game yesterday, which I'm sure we're all very broken up about. But this is still a really talented guy who I expect to come in and be a regular part of Oregon secondary. Coming out of high school, this is a guy who had elite speed, ran a 4.39 40-yard dash coming out of high school, and he brings a lot of experience to Eugene as well. So 2024 is going to be his sixth and final year of college football. He only played four games in the 2022 season whilst at Sam Houston. His second year of college football was in the COVID year. And so that grants him a sixth season. So he is someone who has seen a lot of football. He is someone who played at a very high level this past year. He is not big like Kyrie Jackson or Triquez Bridges, two departing corners from the Ducks secondary this offseason, which Jackson went to the NFL. Triquest Bridges went down to Florida. Those were two key guys this year. He's not cast in that sort of mold, but he's clearly effective. Now, which cornerback position is he going to play? Well, they could move guys around. I would think this is someone who's going to see the field pretty regularly, though. 
And when you look at where the playing time fits, kind of like how he slots into this particular room of defensive backs, which I think has got some talent, but certainly bringing in a guy like this always tends to make sense. You could have argued that Oregon had enough talent before Kyrie Jackson came in last year. Well, then he was an all-conference caliber player, and he was kind of a stud really from the get-go. After a rough game against Texas Tech, he had an awesome season, but he had an interception in that game, just had a couple penalties as well. So Triquez and Kyrie move on. Going into next year, this means Oregon's cornerback room, cornerback room, not safety room, cornerback room, goes something like this. You've got Cam Alexander. You've got Jaleel Florence, who I think will have an all-conference season in 2024, and I have been very high on since he got to Oregon's campus and played a little as a true freshman, was one of Oregon's top two corners this year. I expect him to be again next year. He was very good this season. Ended the year, unfortunately, with an injury. Definitely missed him in the Pac-12 title game. But Dante Manning, who has been at Oregon for about 18 years now, and we know what Dante Manning is as a corner. Nico Reed, still currently on the roster. You've got Roderick Pleasant, who forced a fumble in the bowl game and played a little bit sparingly here and there throughout the course of the regular season. Dalen Austin, supremely talented recruit, who will be in all likelihood, I believe, a redshirt freshman next year. Kamari Terrell, who is a smaller guy with a lot of speed, kind of plays that nickel spot. I wonder if Terrell doesn't move up the depth chart a hair with the departure of Cole Martin to Arizona State. And then you've got Solomon Solomon Davis and Colin Gill. So that's where Oregon's defensive backroom sits. I do not foresee another addition here, barring another departure. Even then, I'd be a little bit surprised. I think one of of Dalen Austin or Roderick Pleasant see a rather sizable role in the secondary in 2024. It could be one of the younger guys as well that you describe as a little bit more under the radar here. But if you're, you know, based on the experience factor, your top four corners would be Cam Alexander, Jaleel Florence, Dante Manning, and Nico Reed. Is that enough for the season? Probably. Does the coaching staff feel good enough about those guys? We'll see. We, we, we will see. I know that everyone likes to look at the Washington games and say, look, the secondary wasn't good enough. The passing numbers just don't support that notion. Oregon was great against every single team they played when they were on defense, except for Washington, which happens to have a first-round quarterback, a first-round NFL wide receiver, and two other NFL caliber wide receivers. So, I think that the secondary was quite good this past season. I think Alexander will slide into the mix. I don't think we can know for sure. You know, yeah, he's an all-conference guy, and you bring in a transfer like that a sixth year. Typically, he's going to be a starting corner. Won't be surprised at that whatsoever. I also wouldn't be surprised if the staff says, "Mm, this guy, you know, a little bit smaller. We want more size on the outside. They go with Jaleel Florence and Dante Manning, who are a little bit taller. I don't know that Manning is that much taller, but Florence, I think, is listed. At 6'1", 6'2", he's got a couple inches. Maybe they like that sort of guy out there. I, I don't know. That'll be a fascinating thing to follow in spring football. But final note on, on Cam Alexander. I, I, I like the transfer portal edition, by the way. I, I think that it makes a lot of sense to bring in an experienced veteran guy. He did not do this at UTSA, but whilst at Sam Houston for two consecutive years, he returned kicks. And over his final two seasons with the Bearcats, he had 24 
total returns. Oregon's return game is solidified in the punting sense with Tez Johnson, but he was not a regular kick returner for the Ducks. Gary Bryant Jr. was. He'll be back. You figure he'll be at or near the top of the depth chart in the return game, but I don't know that he'd, he'd factor into that. I told you about the speed he had coming out of high school. ran a 4.39. That is rather quick. We'll just have to wait and see. Speed often kills. Speed can be the name of the game, but this is a guy that – uh, I'm going to talk about more on tomorrow's show with, with my guy, Max Torres, but I think the addition makes a lot of sense. I expect him to be a regular player for the Ducks in uh, 2023. And by the way, one thing, Taylor Porter is the new strength and conditioning coach for our Oregon Ducks. Coach Porter, welcome to the flock. Happy to have you. So there's still so much more to get to on the show, like so many things. Sometimes I wonder, what am I going to talk about on the show? Oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about on the show. Right now, we're going to talk about Jace Medical. I know we come to sports to escape from some of the crazy realities of life, but can we talk for just a minute about preparing for that actual real-life stuff? According to the FDA, pharmacies are running out of antibiotics like amoxicillin right now amidst the worst flu season in over a decade. It's not what you love to hear. But Jace Medical is there to help. I can't imagine a more helpless feeling than needing a particular medication and not being able to get it, even if it's, or especially if it is life saving. But that'll be okay because of Jace Medical. The Jace case is a pack of five different antibiotics that treat a long list of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, sinusitis, skin infections, among others. This stuff could happen to any of us, and you want to be prepared. Visit jacemedical.com, complete your physician encounter. It'll be reviewed by a board-certified physician, and your medications will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacist at a fraction of the cost. It's never been more important to be prepared than today. Go to jacemedical.com. That's J-A-S-E medical.com. Use offer code locked on for $20 off your order. All right. Should we talk more about the transfer portal? Yeah, I think so. You know why? Because the transfer portal, as we know, has a rather large impact on how Oregon is going to perform going forward on a year-by-year basis. So this question came in from Nathan. Mailbag is always open. Got plenty of questions in there that I'll always get to. YouTube comments or Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks. Those are the handles. DMs and mentions are wide open. If you want to become a Locked on Ducks insider, go join the subtext community, free 14-day trial. Then it's just $5 a month. Not a requirement, but there are all sorts of perks over there if you join. I promise I'll make it worth your while. This question from Nathan. Hey, Spencer, not a serious question, but you never know. I think it's a serious question. Any chance Oregon will go for Alabama transfer portal interior offensive lineman Terrence Ferguson? I'll just leave it there. Go Ducks. No is the short answer here. I think along the offensive line, with the return of a Johnny Cornelius, who came in from Rhode Island last year and was an absolute stud, I thought he played great. I thought he looked great. He did have a couple of missed blocking assignments in the Civil War, but other than that, I mean, nobody's perfect, of course. He graded very well on PFF. I think that he is having him and Cornelius and, and, and Connerly there. Remember, Cornelius is now the blindside protector of our quarterback, Dylan Gabriel's a lefty. I don't think they're going to switch those guys around. So I'm really glad Cornelius is back. But I think that with that announcement, Oregon is done adding in the portal along the offensive line. 
I don't think there's a need anywhere else. And I think that for, for the Ducks, you, you've got returning talent. You've got up-and-coming talent. You've got depth. You've got production. Remember, they're bringing in Matthew Bedford, the interior offensive lineman from Indiana. So I think that makes it even less likely. You've got Davey Hooley there on the depth chart. You know, at tackle, you've got George Silva and Fayope Lalaulu, who have played, you know, from time to time, especially Fayope in, uh, you know, the 14F package this year as the extra offensive lineman. I, I think that those guys being your number twos, as we saw this year, that's plenty good enough. And, and I think that Bedford probably slides in, starts for Stephen Jones. You go from one sixth year guy to another fifth or sixth year guy. Bedford's been around college football for quite a while. I don't think this offensive line is going to skip a beat next year. Poncho is going to slide over and be center. I, I, I'm really, really high in where that unit is. I think Elite Terry did a fantastic job this year. And I, I do think they can improve. I think the run blocking kind of fell off as the season went on a little bit. But I think that the Ducks are still in re a really, really good position. I don't think there's a need. I don't think you need depth. I don't think you need more high-end talent. I don't think you need anything. I think you have a mix of young players, veteran guys, all-conference caliber linemen. I, I will not be surprised if, once again, there are Oregon offensive linemen earning honors next season. And Cornelius could be one of those guys. Bedford can be one of those guys. Poncho could be one of those guys. Or Harper or Connerly. None of them would surprise me. Not none of them would surprise me there. So no, I don't think Oregon's going back into the portal for, for an offensive lineman. I think that they're completely set up front and I love where they're at. I love where elite Terry is at in, in his career. You know, he's gotten a little bit of buzz this offseason just for the job he did at 27 years old to coach that offensive line, the way they protected Bo Nix, the way they ran the football, you know, Joe Moore award finalists at, you know, some stage. I don't know if that's like a quarter group or semifinal, whatever you want to call it. They were really, really good. And I expect them to be next year. This question from Nathaniel hopping on that question about Oregon versus Washington passing games. How much of Washington beating Oregon is owed to that or coaching? If it's 100% coaching, then that question is irrelevant and we will continue to struggle against them. If it's 0% coaching, then we should be able to beat Washington handily given the answer to that question. This was a question from a previous show. The premise is, hey, you know, why why couldn't Oregon beat Washington? Did, did they just get out coached? Were the players just better? I think they got out coached a couple of times. I think Oregon also just failed to execute in a couple of different instances. I, I thought Oregon significantly outplayed Washington in Seattle, just didn't win the football game. Field goal, conversion into the end zone, deciding to kick a field goal, like all, all things that could have led to an Oregon win and didn't. I think that this Washington team that came up short uh, against Michigan yesterday, they were really good. Like we, we know they were very, very good. And Penix and, and those receivers are just a really, really tough matchup. And I think that game kind of showcased a couple things because that was the best defensive effort I have seen against Washington this year. I do not count the Arizona State game because I have it on good authority that they were dealing with, with injuries and the flu at that time. There was the emotional letdown factor after beating the Ducks in dramatic fashion and rushing the field the week prior. It's a very real thing. Remember, Oregon beat Washington in 2018 on – uh, game-winning touchdown in overtime from C.J. Verdell. And what happened the next week? Went up to Washington State. Big emotional letdown. First half blanked. 
up in Pullman uh, in college game when college game day was there. So I, I think that that's just one of those things that happens in college football. But Michigan played so well. And, and what I noticed about that team, I do not think is 100% coaching. I don't think it's 0% coaching, though. I think their personnel were very, very good. Their game plan was better than Oregon's in the Pac-12 championship game. I think Dan Lanning would admit as much. And when I watched that Michigan game, there were two notable differences that Oregon has to be better at next year. Number one, they've got safeties who can really cover. They do. I, I mean, that Sanders still guy w- was running stride for stride with those Washington receivers, no matter who it was, every chance that he got. And, and so I don't think Oregon had that sort of guy coverage-wise on the back end. I, I don't think that Steve Stevens could do that. I don't think that Evan Williams could do that. You go back the prior year, Bennett Williams struggled against that team. Like there were just not good enough safeties and coverage. I don't think Tyson Johnson can cover those sorts of guys consistently. He got beat routinely against Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. So I, I he did have a good coverage moment early in the game um, on Washington's first drive to keep him out of the end zone. But I just looked at the way those safeties covered, the speed they had, and they were just able to keep up with them. So I think that was the first thing. But the second thing, Penix was so off, and it was frustrating to watch the game at some level because it was just like, man, really? Now you're missing these throws? Like, you don't miss a throw all season long against Oregon, it feels, and now you're missing throws all over the place, multiple interceptions. What was the difference? The interior pressure. The the, the interior pressure. You know, Michigan got pressure a couple times off the edge. So, too, did Oregon. But those tackles are really, really good. You know, Roger Rosengarten and Troy Faltano for the Huskies, those are both NFL guys. Faltano's going to go probably in the first round. But Michigan's interior defensive line was better than Oregon's. It, it just was. Not having Jordan Birch in that game absolutely hurt. A- absolutely hurt. There was not sufficiently consistent pressure. The way that Michigan – disrupted Penix early in the game. Oregon wasn't able to do it early in the game, so Penix was in a rhythm, and even the few times they did get pressure, it didn't rattle him as much because he was in such a good flow. Michigan took him out of that flow. I thought Washington had a horrible game plan offensively. They weren't pushing the ball down the field until the early portion of the second quarter, which I just do not understand. But I think that for Washington, that group of personnel, Penix and those receivers, align with what Kalen DeBoer wants to do offensively and what they were able to do well. And they conceived an offense that did an excellent job highlighting the talents of those guys. And the Michigan defense just outplayed them. The Michigan defense outplayed them, and the defensive line in particular threw everything off. And my question going into the game, I thought Washington would win, but my question going into the game for Michigan was the same one for Oregon. You know, I talked to a bunch of Oregon fans at the uh, alumni tailgate before the title game in Vegas, and they said, well, what do you think is important here? And I said, you pressure Penix, you win the game. You don't, it's going to be tough. And even without consistent pressure, Oregon could have won that game. But if they'd gotten pressure on Penix consistently, and they tried, they tried sending blitzes, they couldn't get pressure up the middle. But when you do that, you disrupt any quarterback, but especially Penix, a guy who when he's moved off of his spot in the pocket, he is not as effective. He is not as good as Bo Nix or Marcus Mariota sort of guy moving outside the pocket and making throws. He wants to sit there in the pocket, slice and dice you. We know how good he is at doing that, but that's what that matchup came down to. Oregon couldn't get enough interior pressure and the safeties couldn't cover. That's that's what that, that was the difference that I saw in that Michigan game for Washington was the safeties covered much better. 
I think the scheme and approach was clearly better, but the pressure from the start disrupted everything. That's what Oregon was missing. So, no, it's not 100% coaching. And, and I think I, I feel better about Oregon going into 2024 than Washington. I do because those receivers are ridiculous. They're going to have good guys. They will not be as good. But I feel really good about the Ducks going into next season. Speaking of the Big Ten, why don't you ask a question about that, which I'm going to answer after I talk about FanDuel, of course, because the NFL season, it's wrapping, it's wrapping up. It's wrapped up, in fact, and the playoffs are here. There's still time to get in on the action with FanDuel, though, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get 150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's 150 bucks in bonus bets, whether you win or lose. I don't know that it gets easier than that. That's like tapping in a six-inch putt. You'd almost have to try to miss it because if you don't place the bet, then you won't get 150 bucks in bonus bets. That's the only way you don't get them because whether you win or lose, you get it. They've got live save game parlays too. You can find bets in the new Explore tab. You can make a parlay in the Parlay Hub and so much more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on. Make your first bet a layup or a tap in in my verbiage. FanDuel is, of course, an official sponsor of the NFL. Great questions, as always, rolling in here on the show. YouTube comments, Twitter, subtext, always to get in. This from Duck Loyalist 503. Spencer, I have a mailbag question. Duck Loyalist 503, I have a mailbag answer. Out of the four new Big Ten teams from the West, Oregon, Washington, USC, and UCLA, how many transfers came to the Pac-12 from the Big Ten? And is it an advantage for Oregon specifically having someone like Justin Jacobs with that Big Ten experience. So I did a little bit of looking at transfers coming over in this current recruiting cycle. USC added a long snapper for Michigan State and a couple of defensive backs from UCLA. And the other, oh no, that was it. Those are the only Big Ten additions for the four incoming Big Ten Western pod schools. Does that matter? No, it does not. There is, as the old expression goes, I don't really know where it comes from. We'll just, we'll we'll go with this one. There's more than one way to swing a golf club. Underlying fundamentals of a swing have to be there and are there for the guys on the PGA Tour. But to say that everyone has to swing the club the same way, mm-mm. nope, incorrect, not accurate not representative of reality. Victor Hovland swings it different from Jordan Spieth. He looks different from Tiger, who looks different from Rory. A lot of different ways to do that. The same is true with coaching and football. There's more than one way to win a football game. These styles, by the way, were on display in the national championship game. Washington would like to run up the score, play in a shootout, and say, we dare you to go toe-to-toe with us, trying to score touchdowns all the time. Michigan, on the other hand, would like to turn around and hand the ball off and run the football straight down your throat. That is exactly what they were able to do. Is it wrong? Does Washington need to change their approach? No, they just have to come out with a better game plan. They just have to come out maybe with better players in some instances. They have to execute better defensively. Washington could have won that game. They absolutely could have won the game. They weren't able to execute in key spots. 
They held Michigan without a touchdown for two and a half quarters. And then Michigan made the score look worse. The game was a lot closer than that final score indicated. But Michigan was definitely the better team. And they played better throughout the game. They deserved to win. But to say that when you're going into a conference like the Big Ten, that plays more defense. They also play less offense. To think that you should change your style or bring in certain players or try to have guys that can do this, that, and the other thing. No, you have to make the best about the hand that you're trying to deal yourself. That's kind of the unique thing about college football nowadays, especially with the transfer portal. I guess it's always been this way at some level, is you aren't dealt a hand. You get to kind of make your own hand. You can't automatically just say, well, I'm going to draw a straight flush. Well, then you're going to win every hand, and if you could do that, people would just, you know, get a straight flush every single year. That's not the way it goes. And so as a result, you can have certain traits about your team to counter a style, but really you can't get away from what you do. One of my best early takes, and I'll never forget this, was back in 2018, When University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, the Golden Retrievers, as it were, when they became the first 16 seed to beat a one seed, the criticism of Virginia was pretty widespread. And Tony Bennett was their head coach, and he's still their head coach, and he's a very good one. He is a guy that does not like to score a lot of points. He wants to slow things down. He wants to grind it out. He wants to be defensively driven, and he's not going to have big dynamic offenses. He was widely criticized, and I went on a student radio show with my boss, or not not boss, my, my mentor and good friend Jack Benjamin, who's the reason I'm a broadcaster. He had a show in the student radio station. He had me on as a guest. And this was, you know, I, I hadn't done a lot of sports talk radio or anything at the time, but I remember this take very well, and I have it on uh, I have it somewhere on a, on a hard drive um, just because I, I I liked it, and then I ended up being right. He asked me the question, hey, should should Tony Bennett change his style? I mean, they couldn't score enough points. Does he need to you know recruit different sorts of players, have a different culture? And my answer was no. And I used Oregon football as an example because I look back at the Chip Kelly years. Could Chip Kelly have built a team the same way that Jim Harbaugh built those old Stanford teams or that David Shaw did for a long time? Could they look that way? No, because you are what you are. You know what you know, and your style is your style. If you try to be something that you're not, it's going to go even worse than the worst outcome of the vision that you have for how you want your team to win the game. That was sort of a word salad. I hope that this is making sense. If you are someone that believes in a certain style and philosophy, and you've spent your entire coaching career saying, okay, this is how I want to win games. This is what I want it to look like stylistically. Here are the little intricacies. Here are the weaknesses. Here are the strengths. Here's how we tweak this, that, and the other thing. You can't suddenly change that just because it goes wrong on one day. Do you think Kalen DeBoer, because of how that game went, is going to stop throwing the football? He brought in Will Rogers, who played for Mike Leach at Mississippi State. Got news for you. Washington's going to keep throwing the football as much as they possibly can. This is a long digression from 
the style question of, well, do they need to bring in players who can do this? Does the Big Ten need to radically change their offensive approach to outduel Pac-12 teams that are able to score more points? No, they don't. Iowa's got to be better offensively, but Iowa's still a good program. They still win football games. So that's where I come down on that. I, I, I don't think that if you're going into a particular conference, you need to fundamentally alter like, oh, well, we got to be better at this. We got to be able to do that. Like, no, because you do things that other teams aren't able to do as well. Are they going to completely adapt to you? No, it's a style fight. That's what makes football so interesting. Good question. That caused me to go on a completely different tangent. <laughs> uh, I can't believe you guys put up with me sometimes, but I appreciate it. Last one here. This is from Rick. Mailbag, all caps and exclamation points. Very excited. Good morning, Spence. I'd love to hear a breakdown of Ty Thompson committing to Tulane. I don't know much about them, except they beat USC in the bowl game last season, so I already like them. If all goes well, what can that do for his future? Thoughts? Hashtag second segment sip. How about that? So Tulane's got a new head football coach. His name is John Sumrall. He comes over from Troy, where he coached Tez Johnson once upon a time. John Sumrall is an excellent hire. He had a lot of success at Troy and the boosters very much wanted. I heard this. I forget who I heard it from, but somebody told me the boosters at Troy wanted to keep him on because he's a very good coach, but Tulane offered him more money. Willie Fritz went to go coach Houston after Dana Holgerson got fired. Willie Fritz, also a fantastic football coach. And I think a good hire for Houston. I love this spot. For Ty Thompson, he's going to a veteran coach, not some brand new situation. He's going to a guy who's been a head coach with a track record of success. He's going to a program that is playing at a slightly lower level. But when he's you know been in game situations against power five teams, he's not going to struggle going against or he's not going to struggle with the speed of the game playing in the American Conference, which is a, a good, really good group of five league, just to be clear, maybe the best over the last couple of seasons. Tulane has played in their conference title game each of the last two years. They've got a lot of momentum as a program. I, I can't say I've done a deep dive on their roster here, but I know what John Summerall is able to do, and I know that Tulane as a program is going to be able to continue to acquire talent. They're the hottest name, the hottest brand that's going to be in the American Conference next year. They'll probably be the favorites, and I'd suspect they bring in a guy like Ty Thompson to be the starter. I really hope they do. And I hope that that kid succeeds because we know he's got mega talent and he just came to Oregon arguably at the wrong time. Came in and Anthony Brown was there. Okay, well, how about next year? Well, new staff coming in that doesn't feel any sense of loyalty to him and no obligation to start him. And they didn't feel that he was you know, going to be that sort of guy and that Dylan Gabriel would be a better option. I hope he goes and succeeds. I, I really, really do because – He's a good kid. He was at Oregon for three years as the backup, got a bunch of potential, and they just lost their quarterback, Willie Fritz. He's out of eligibility. I'd expect Ty Thompson to go in there and be the starter, and I think with a good coach, that's a program that can continue its success, much like Liberty did with Jamie Chadwell when uh, Hugh Freeze went on to Auburn. I, I think it's that sort of situation, and he can be right at the middle of what they're going to do building towards next year. Appreciate everyone listening. I'll see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.